This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Aranara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Two minutes past nine. You are tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. My name's Bron Burton. I'm Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I'm very well. It's been a long time between drinks. It has. We haven't coupled up together for a long time. <laughs> you know. Especially in the nude. In that radio production professional kind of way. Yeah, that's right. How are you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm very well. Excellent. And you've... um. Recovered from your lurgies, various lurgies, and family's getting better. We're getting there. That's good to We're hear. We're getting there. Hey, thank you, Tim, very much for his three hours of vital bits. Andrew, for his uh, soulful bits. We're going to do some stuff. About soulful vital bits. Soulful yeah, vital. I, I turned on the radio this morning, which I don't usually do at eight o'clock on a Sunday morning. Usually, I'm still kind of snoozing or showering or something, and it was like. Who are you and what have you done with Tim? It's Andrew. It's Andrew. Yeah. Now, now I realise yeah. Tim was back on at 8.15. There you go. Hey, this is uh, Wet and Salty Bits. Radio Marinara. That's what we call ourselves. We've got a big show. We're going to catch up with P.T. Hirschfield from Pink Tank Scuba. And P.T.'s uh, a well-known friend to us and to our Radio Marinara community out there, of which you listening are, of course, a part. Um, PT has just clocked up 700 dives, which I want to have a quick chat to her about as well. But the, And we're going to hit her up for a dive report. Excellent. Does PT stand for Pink Tank? Yes. It does? Yeah. Okay. I'll never do that. And um, she's been... Actually, this is kind of a show which is um, 
unintentionally become about discoveries this week. And it often happens here on Radio Marinara. Sometimes the we're shows... At, we're at the bleeding edge. Yeah. <laughs> the bleeding edge. Of discoveries. As opposed to the cutting edge. The cutting edge, yeah. yeah. Edge. Well, okay, yep. Um, yeah, sometimes it happens. The, the shows sort of evolve organically and then suddenly we find we have three segments generally about the, you know, with a, with a common theme. Today seemed to be about discoveries. So, PT, um, you know, as you would expect for someone who dives pretty much every single day, today is one of those rare exceptions. You're likely to come across all sorts of things under the water. Something unusual. Yeah, and um, over the last short period of time, PT's come across three particularly interesting um, finds, but one is an actual bona fide discovery that she made during the week, and it sent social media into a spin when she put a picture of... I'm not going to give the whole story away, she can tell it, but she put a picture of this particular critter up on her social media page and it just sent uh, sent the fishos out there into an absolute flurry because no-one could work out what this thing was. Huh, I look forward to that. It's really, really fascinating. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Is she going to show us pictures? Um, <laughs> we'll post them on our Facebook page and on the Triple R page. And I didn't post stuff up from last week, so my apologies, but um, I'll, I'll do a double hit this week. Um, uh, then we are in studio, having we're being joined by Dr Felix Marks from um, both Museum Victoria and Monash University, and he's part of a, a team which has made another incredibly significant discovery, and it's been likened to uh, finding an, um, a fossil of a kangaroo in Scotland. <laughs> so this is about, um, obviously not kangaroos, it's about pygmy right whales and uh, an animal which is until now always been thought to uh, only inhabit waters south of the equator, so southern hemisphere. A cold lover. Yes. <clears throat> well, well, actually, not southern. necessarily. A southern cold lover, yeah. yeah, particularly likes the southern climes. That's right. So there's something... A pygmy right whale. For it to be in the northern hemisphere uh, suggests something fairly major happened at some point in time, and um, I'm, again, I'm not going to give the whole story away. Felix is going to talk about that. But this discovery and its significance, and it hasn't just been found in, in one place, it's been found in two as in two countries quite a long way away from each other. By this group at the museum? Uh, yes, and I, I gather there's a team um, from universities uh, in these two respective countries as well. So not just two places in the same country, two different countries. Wow. Yeah. And then to follow up at the end, I'm going to talk about a couple of discoveries. Um, well, one is it's, it's kind of a review paper which has appeared in the latest edition of Nature, reminding us of all the different... Well, not, not only reminding us... So it's talking about ocean acidification. I, I, I feel like I almost need to apologise. I seem to be talking all the time about the dangers that we face in the ocean, ocean acidification with increasing concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, as well as plastics. Um, you know, I'm, I'm freaking out, as lots of people are, about all the different dangers that we face in the ocean. And we know, of course, we talk about it a lot on this program, how dependent the land-based stuff on earth so us our survival is on mm. the oceans um, i'm going to be talking about ocean acidification and some of the effects that are having on animals apart from the ones that i know that i've talked about before the obvious ones that is you decrease ph and corals find it harder to grow things which are calcifiers shells but there are also other effects as well we'll leave that to the end but just before we go any further, just as a little bit of a news item, if I may, right now. And I will get mm. to the weather in a couple of seconds if people are waiting to hear the weather, but I'm sure they've already looked at it on their phone. It's wet and cold. It's wet. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's cold again. Yep. Um, and this is... So back to plastics, and we've talked about that a lot recently, and, this, and I, I interviewed um, Karina Holden, 
who is the director and writer of the movie Blue, mm. which I encourage people to see as soon as it hits the um, the local cinemas, which will be very soon. It's, it's quite an amazing and... I don't know, I, I feel like I've had an epiphany after watching that film. But there's a paper which has just appeared in Environmental Science and Technology entitled Export of Plastic Debris by Rivers into the Sea. And they have shown from a study of... So it's a review of other studies. They haven't gone out. These are people from Bremerhaven in Germany. Um, at a marine institute there, they have done what's called a literature survey. So they've looked at work that other people have done and they've brought all this together and published this paper showing that just 10 rivers in the world... So we, so we think about plastics um, and we wonder about how they get into the ocean and we know, and these people talk about this in this paper, uh, that about one-fifth, 20% of the total ocean plastic that's out there comes from marine activity, so mm. stuff being dumped off ships, um, drilling platforms, fishing boats, that kind of thing. But the other four-fifths, which amounts to about 5 million up to about 12 or 13 million tonnes a year of that plastic in the sea, they have been able to show that a really big amount of this, and this is kind of a duh thing, we know this, but mm. it's it's important to, to actually get all this down, on, to, to show with statistics and and. and, and to write a, a peer review paper, they've been able to show that an enormous amount of this, um, up to about 4 million tonnes a year, so something which is probably you know, 20% of that total, is coming from just 10 rivers on Earth. Wow. And those 10 rivers, uh, a lot of them are in Southeast Asia. Um, it's it's the, the Yangtze, the Yellow, the, the Mekong, uh, the Indus, um, the Niger in Africa, the Nile in Africa that these rivers are accounting for an enormous amount of the ocean, of the plastic which is getting to the ocean. That is, bringing it from deep inland and then delivering it into the ocean. And we know this kind of just by looking, but they have now got all the data together and they've put it down. They've shown that, therefore, that if we can do something about perhaps cleaning up just these rivers... Mm. Stop that, it at its source. Stop it at its source, then we're going to reduce by a really large amount, the amount of plastic which is getting into the ocean. And, and, yeah, it's easy to say that. You know, just let's just stop the Yangtze dumping lots of plastics into the ocean. But Chinese are doing a lot in this respect at the moment. Um, and I'm sure we are not very good at it at all in this country. But it just reminds us that no matter where you are on land, that stuff has a really good chance of ending up in the ocean. Mm. It's going to find its way into a river. That eventually will work its way down to the sea and dump it out there. And this paper also has looked at microplastics as well as macroplastics. So someone else has done this before, um, shown similar data. Not near, it, from, from the previous study, it appears not as much went into the ocean, but now that they've done this more robust study, taking more studies and looking at those, they've been able to show that there is a lot more going in. And the other important thing about this work is that they've looked at microplastics, which is bits of plastic below five millimetres, which we know can get into things like copepods, they can get into zooplankton and all the way through the food chain and, as I mentioned the other week, into, even into the brains of fish. Mm. Um, they've looked at those, that cohort of plastic as well as the larger chunks. For example, if you go and see blue, you will see a really evocative example of those larger chunks of plastic being in the guts of shearwater chicks on Norfolk Island. Yeah, it's just right. one very sad example of that. Um, what, is the, what is the paper? The paper is entitled Export of Plastic Debris by Rivers into the Sea by um, Christiane Schmidt, Tobias Kralt and Stefan Wagner from, the, um, from Leipzig in Germany and also from the... Um, I said Bremerhaven, but it's not Bremerhaven. Um, 
Weidenbach in Germany and from yeah, Department of Analytical Chemistry at the Helmholtz Centre for Environmental Research in Leipzig mm. in the former East Germany. There has been some good news this week at a, at a small but very significant local level with um, the Victorian government voting to ban single-use plastic bags. Did you come across that one this week? Well, they haven't yet. No, I mean, they're, it's what, gone they're through do- the legislative... Ha- has it already? Last I heard, and I guess you know, I haven't been watching enough social media, <laughs> um, they were trying to figure out whether it would have the desired effect or not because, as you know, by banning those single-use thin plastic bags that we get at, like the grey ones we get at Coles and Woolies that that has in other places encouraged the use people have been able to show they encouraged the use of higher density plastic bags so the ones which are more damaging if you like mm. and at last I heard it was they were going to compare both those things before they did the ban so the ban has gone through has it? Uh, I understand it's gone through the lower house but um, I'm going to do some fact checking while we because um... I actually don't think it's as simple as that because when you ban one thing, then people will then, you know, they're not going to change their habits. They're still going to want plastic bags, and they're going to go for heavier plastic bags, and then they might even go and buy plastic bags mm, to rub the, dump their rubbish in. <laughs> I think we should pause this discussion. Okay. Because I can see an, a whole uh, a whole session emerging here, Dr Beach. I should do the weather. Yeah, do the weather, and then we'll play a track, and then yeah. we'll get PT on the line. It's a little bit cool out there. It's only going to be 16 degrees today. 70% chance of showers, so high chance of showers, more frequent over the outer eastern suburbs. Winds uh, west southwest 15 to 25k, tending south southwest 15 to 20k during the day. Uh, looking ahead tomorrow, 20 degrees, possible shower. Tuesday, 23, possible late shower. Just little sprinkles of rain, you know, just a couple of millimetres at most. 25 by Wednesday, cooling down again Thursday, 19, back up again for next weekend to 24, 25, but not the 30s that we've seen recently or the high 20s or it, 30s. There were lots of white legs walking around Melbourne and its suburban areas this week. Did you find that? <laughs> yeah, white turning pink. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're heading out on the water, you'll be interested to know what's happening with the tides. At Lonnie, so at Point Lonsdale, um, they're not giving it to me. I've just got the tides at Williamstown here. High tide at Williamstown, 5.30 this afternoon. Low, low tide at Williamstown is at noon today. And Point Lonsdale, they're not telling me. So you're going to have to look it up on your app if you know what, want to know what time the tide is at the heads. Surf, I don't know what's happening with surf. Do you want me to read out Swellnet? Dr Surf would be... He, he suggests we don't. If you're really keen to go surfing today... Yeah. Maybe we could hit him up for a surf report. Maybe we could see if he's available. We could, but it just says here, persistent onshore winds are not favouring surf conditions across most, across most Victorian beaches. Oh, well. Onshore. Listen to Triple R today instead. Uh, Dr Beach, you've been doing a little bit of homework on the... We've got PT on the line, so we'll get to PT in just a second. Uh, yeah, we, Bronya just mentioned before about um, Victorian Parliament ban- banning plastic bags. Uh, well, there's going to be a three-month consultation process, and Environment Minister Lily D'Ambrosio said the government would consult with businesses and the community on how to implement the ban. In some states, she said they've gone down the road of banning the use of lightweight plastic bags, but that resulted in an increase in the use of heavier plastic bags, she said. We don't want to repeat those mistakes. Indeed. Indeed. Thanks, Dr Beach. So it actually hasn't gone through yet, but there is going to be a consultation process and then it will be banged through. Very good. Hey, uh, on the line, we have PT Hirschfield from Pink Tank Scuba. Good morning, PT. Good morning, Bron and Dr Beach and listeners. Hi, PT. How are you? Great, thank you. Hey, first up, congratulations on your 700th dive. 
Seven hundred, so <laughs> my God, that's incredible. Um, how was it? What did what did you do for your seven hundredth dive before we get on to your big discoveries this week? So, as you know, I'm working through my scuba bucket list of marine animals and my husband and I headed over to the Maldives and we did a liverboard over there and managed to cross whale shark finally off our bucket list. So that was very much worth celebrating. But since that, I've actually clocked up 725 dives. That was just a couple of weeks ago. Once I got back to Melbourne, I've got to say, every time I go away and dive, you know, Bali, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, Philippines, Indonesia, Maldives. I come back and Melbourne is unbeatable for the diversity of critters we have. It's cold diving, but it pays off. It's absolutely brilliant. And PT, we hear that you've, um, speaking of diversity of critters that we have in Melbourne, that you've found something which is kind of way out there on the diversity scale. I definitely did not expect what I found this week. It's been a sensational week for diving um, uh, under the piers at Port Phillip. And, you know, a lot of people dive Melbourne for the beautiful shipwrecks and submarines and the go-catching craze. My interest is to take marine life portraits and videos and one of my specific goals is to always try and get a photo or a video that no-one else has already taken. And at about 2 o'clock on Monday, I went under Rye Pier doing a shore entry and almost immediately when I descended, put my head under the water, I saw an animal that didn't even look real to me. It was this huge silvery white fish with four large black spots on each side, about two metres long, the width of my car, and about as narrow as a piece of cardboard. But it was in cobra position, so head up, tail on the ground, not really even swimming, but it looks like that I arrived just in time because it was eyeing off a tiny bit of bait on the end of a hook. And it didn't look like anything I'd ever seen in any of my dives or ID books at home. And I spent about 20 minutes photographing and videoing it and raced home, still couldn't find it in the fish ID books. So I went onto one of the local Melbourne scuba Facebook pages and asked for some help to figure out what it was. Um, because of the sheer size of it, a lot of people were guessing it might be an oarfish. But that didn't really sit right with me because all fish are really well-rounded and this animal was pretty much as flat as an envelope. Mm. And soon all the local fish experts, including top ichthyologists like Diane Bray and Mark McGrouther from the museums around Australia, um, people from online citizen science tracking projects like RedMap and iNaturalist and authors of Fish ID guides were inviting each other into the discussion Um, But it was actually one of my scuba buddies, Alan Beckhurst, who works over at the Marine and Freshwater Discovery Centre in Queenscliff, who was the first person to accurately identify this mysterious fish. And uh, what Alan doesn't know isn't worth knowing, isn't that right, PT? 100% true. Um, (laughs) Google won't know it, but Alan will. (laughs) Excellent. So what is it? What what is it that you found? So basically what, what I've come across is a... Trachepterus, Trachepterus, a ribbon fish. It's also known as a peregrine deal fish. And it's slightly better known in New Zealand, but it has a distribution spread into the Mediterranean Sea. Um, there are very few photos of, of it online. Um, and there are sightings of it in Malta, but it grows to about three metres. It's a deep sea pelagic, which is why it's pretty unusual to find in the shallows of Port Phillip Bay. And um, Alan actually suggested it might be a bit lost. <laughs> but there are some sources that suggest they might be sometimes seen sighted in the shallows in spring. And his 
um, Alan Becker's research on discoverlife.org actually uncovered two other listed sightings for Port Phillip Bay. One was in 1908 and the other was in 1938. Wow. So that made this week's sighting the third recorded sighting in 109 years. And what makes it even more rare is that most of the previous records are based on specimens that have been washed up dead onto the shore, whereas I had a really unique opportunity to film and photograph this fish alive. And I've had a look at the video footage that you've put up on your um, on your uh, website. Um, and again, we will definitely put a link to this on our Facebook page. Uh, and it looks to be in pretty good condition. It's not doing much, but just having a look at sort of how quickly its fins are, are moving around, it, it looked to be in pretty good nick to me. I, I thought it was a, an absolutely beautiful specimen. And it, it did look really healthy. I guess there is a, a concern that if it is a bit lost and a bit out of range, that it might... Um, not be able to find its way back out to depth and outside the heads or wherever it needs to go to be happy and live a long life. Um, and Diane Bray of the Museum of Victoria has asked that in the sad event that my fishy doesn't find its way back to where it needs to go and winds up washed up onto a shore, that anyone who finds it, please contact the Museum of Victoria so that they can collect it and find out a bit more about it. PT, is there, is there any um, information on how long ribbon fish live normally? Um, in terms of the information that the fish experts have been able to give me, and, and that's been really limited, what we know about them, because they're not often cited, um, there's not a lot of information that's been collected. Um, even the author of Grant's Guide to Fishes um, contacted me and said he'd never seen that species before and that we can learn from each other. So um, we don't really know. There hasn't really been that kind of tracking, I guess, um, as to what their lifespan might be. So I, I'm not sure, but... I guess the reality is, while these animals seem really rare, um, it boils down to the fact that, you know, the, the more that we're in the water, the more we can observe, the more um, evidence and data we can collect, the more we can learn about them. And that's really exciting from a citizen science point of view because we are feeding in now to these larger scientific databases of what we do know about the animals. So I guess the question you've asked is, you know, one of many questions that hopefully through further encounters and observations we might get closer to answering. Indeed. You said you were in the water for 20 minutes, PT, uh, photographing this, taking videos. D did it move? Did it, did it stay in the, was it like in the same general area under Rye Pier when you got out of the water or was it heading off towards their heads or something? I, I think it would have been happy to stay and maybe take a bite of that bait actually if I hadn't come along to take its photo and video. But um, it stayed in that upright position. It did, it did not look like it was swimming, but we actually, during that 20 minutes together, we, we started moving out towards um, Sorrento. So out from under the pier, very much still in the shallows. But um, I dare say that if we do wind up finding that, that fish somewhere on a beach, it would most likely be somewhere between Rye and um, Sorrento. Um, but it, we did travel quite a long distance although it was pretty effortless on the part of the animal to, to move in that position. Since Monday, have you had a chance to get back in the water there to see if it's still in that area? I have. I've done six two-hour dives this week. Um, that was the, first, oh, the second one on Monday. Um, unfortunately, I may never spot that animal again, and, and other people may not as well, but it doesn't hurt to keep our eyes open and to keep revisiting those areas. And obviously, it was in such shallow water it could be seen by the fishermen on the pier. So um, anyone who's even wading in the water is in with a chance of 
of um, some sort of sighting, but I dare say it's probably one of these elusive, mythical, mystical animals that, that may or may decide to present itself to us again. And just to call out too, if you do happen to come across this fish washed up on the beach, um, best person to call at that point would probably be Diane Bray at Museum Victoria. I know the museum are pretty keen if it does happen to wash up and not asking people to go out there and find it and <laughs> kill it. But if you do happen to find it no. washed up, um, if you do happen to find it washed up, contact the museum straight away because um, they would be, uh, I think it's not an understatement to say almost frothing at the mouth to get their hands on this one. <laughs> but, <laughs> My, just... my preference would be that it has a lovely long life yes. first and then at the, at the end of its natural life, if, if we have further opportunity to observe it, that would be great. Yep. And I know Diane would be really grateful for that. Yep. PT, I'm, I'm thinking you could almost get a paper out of this observation, you know, a video, you know, all those photographs and, you know, where you found it and, you know, talking about the previous records and those things. Um, yeah, the on, on iNaturalist, um, Martha Grauper has already put out a short journal piece and I've put up a blog piece and we'll be writing an article for um, the next edition of Divelog magazine that I write a regular column for. But um, it, it's really exciting to be just, you know, just as a regular scuba diver, I don't have a marine biology background by any means, but to actually start piecing some pieces of the puzzle together through research and first-hand observation, um, I, I think it would be great if... if someone out there you know took a real interest in this and I know Diane was saying that there needs to be more analysis of the species and and you know the identification of, of the different fish within that um, taxonomy so um, I, I think there's some further research to be written at some point I'm uh, sure there is. Absolutely. Um, and I will just dispute that comment um, that you made, PT, about you not having a marine biology background because after 725 dives and most of them in Port Phillip Bay, <laughs> because you haven't sat in lecture theatres and taken copious notes, I'd, I'd say, and with the observations that you're making in all of your records, um, yeah, no, <laughs> you, you've definitely... You've got the apprentice... Um, the apprentice uh, uh, approach to marine biology, and it's just fantastic. Um, before we let you go, I just wanted to um, ask you quickly, Terry uh, mentioned, um, Terry Allen, our dive reporter, about this world record attempt that's coming up, um, and you're involved in that too, I believe. Absolutely. Yeah, really exciting to see this happening, and all of the divers and all of the scuba diving industry people coming together and having a real go at this uh, world record, which I think we should be able to smash, to be honest. We've got a fabulous community of active divers in Melbourne and that's growing all the time for very good reasons like, like you guys and like we've been talking about this morning and it would just be great to see as many people as possible jump on and register and the registration fees are going directly back into the dive industry um, and to growing that and keeping that healthy and vibrant and just come along and um, you know that sense of community one of the best parts about diving other than the marine animals is, is all of the amazing humans that you get to meet and share time with underwater and on land as well. So it's going to be a fantastic community event. Really encourage everyone to come along and be involved. Great. And I think it's on the first Saturday in December, so about six weeks away. Um, so pop that yep. one in your diaries. Yep, Dr Beach? I don't know if I've vagued out for a second, but what, 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 what is the world record you're attempting, the most number of divers in the water at one uh, So it's... It's the greatest number of divers um, in a line. They need to be close enough to be able to touch each other and they need to be submerged underwater. And, I, yeah, we're, we're aiming for at least 400 divers so that we can um, put a good margin um, ahead of what the current record is. 
Fantastic. Can you imagine the logistics that are going to be involved in that? Absolutely brilliant. Good opportunities for buddy breathing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be in very shallow water, so hopefully there won't need to be too much uh, buddy breathing. And buoyancy control too, I imagine, is going to be a fairly big factor in that too, PT. So, um, yeah. I I, I bet the ribbon fish would enjoy watching that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is exactly what I am fantasising about. You get 400 divers in the shallows, in a line, in one to two metres of water, and the ribbon fish does its grand finale as it makes its way back out the head. That's right. They're trying to emulate me. They're trying to look like me. <laughs> awesome. Hey, thanks so much, PT. And quick plug just before you go for your uh, for your website. We will put a link, I promise, this week. We will put a link to, to what you do on our Facebook page. But um, if our listeners want to get online right now and have a, have a look at this incredible fish, where should they go? So you can head over to my blog, pinktankscuba.com, or jump onto the Pink Tank Scuba Facebook page, YouTube channel, or Instagram. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much, PT. It's been a joy as always, and uh, we will catch up with you again soon. Thanks so much. Talk okay. to you again. Thanks. Bye for now. PT Hirschfield there. Talking about the ribbon fish yeah. underneath Rye Pier. Or the deal fish if you're in New Zealand. The deal fish. The deal fish. Yes, the deal fish. You're on 3RRR. You are. Radio Marinara is the name of this program. We're about all things wet and salty. Super quick plug, and then we're going to put on a track because Felix Marks is here from Museum Victoria. If you missed the start of the program, he's going to be in shortly to talk about this incredible discovery of pygmy right whale. Pygmy right whale. Fossils. Which is apparently not in the right spot. No. Well, what we thought. It's the pygmy wrong whale. It's the pygmy wrong whale. We're, we're just so sharp here, aren't we, with the, with the, with the, with the witty banter. On a Sunday morning. Walk for Western Port. I mentioned this last week and um, it starts pretty soon, so you'd want to get your skates on. But if you want a quick reminder, this is happening today. Uh, This is celebrating Victoria's marine treasures and it's a short walk. It's about a kilometre around Hastings for short, or you can go longer through um, the wetlands, crib point on the boardwalk. It's about seven kilometres, so a bit of a longer walk if you want that one. But it's a lovely way for everyone to get together. It's taking place down at uh, at, um, Hastings, as I mentioned. Um, Today, uh, Hastings foreshore and kicks off at about 10 o'clock. So if you're down that way, there's a few mangroves around there. There are. We're not playing the mangrove song again. We've played that song so many times. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, you might have heard of an American werewolf in London. Well, our next guest is part of a team that's just made a totally unexpected discovery about pygmy whales. It's being likened to finding a fossil kangaroo in Scotland. So previously known to only inhabit waters in the southern hemisphere, pygmy whale fossils have been confirmed in the northern hemisphere in both Japan and Italy. Dr Felix Marks is currently Research Associate at Museums Victoria. He's also at Monash University. He's joining us now to talk about his team's discovery and why it's so significant in its contribution to what we know about whale evolution. Good morning, Felix. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much for coming in. Um, Pygmy whales, now... They've been described um, in uh, in the press release, actually, um, that came out from Museum of Victoria as being quite bizarre and mysterious. What is it that makes them so mysterious? So, in a way, you can sort of think of pygmy right whales as a bit of the, the platypus of the southern seas. Um, so, one thing is that they only live in the southern hemisphere, which is, which is unusual enough for a whale. They're the smallest living whale. They grow to about six metres long, which sounds big, but if you consider that a blue whale reaches up to 30 metres, it's quite tiny, actually. Um, they're the only whale that can see in colour. Um, they are built like a tank, like their skeleton looks really different from anything else. And we just know very, very little about them. We don't know how many there are. We don't know exactly where they live. They're just very cryptic, if you like. Dr Beach? Um, 
I was just wondering, so they're in the Southern Ocean. What, why are they not in the Northern Ocean? Ah, so that's in a way... Equatorial boundaries? Exactly. So that's, that's part of that story. So if you, if you think about the equator, you've got effectively a band of warm water where you don't really get that much food. Yeah. And so that's something that seems to be a bit difficult for whales and dolphins and, and seals as well to cross, especially when they're smaller ones. So it effectively makes a migration barrier. Yeah, effectively, that, yes. Yeah. So it sort of locks you in into one half of the world, if you like. What do we know about evolution of whales and pygmy whales in particular? You're saying we don't know that much, but what, what do we know? What have we known up to this point? So again, for the pygmy right whale, it's actually <laughs> quite a controversy at the moment. Um, so... It's classified in its own family because it's so unique. Um, there's a huge uh, controversy going on between people who look at body shapes, who think that um, they are effectively like a family of their own and have been ever since they first appeared and are vaguely related to right whales, hence the name pygmy right whales. They look a bit like that. Um, then there is another school of thought that uh, looks at uh, molecular data, DNA, and then it turns out that they're more closely related to rock whales, so things like blue whales, humpbacks. And now there are some morphological data that seem to support that as well, so body shape data again, and link them to a particular fossil group called cetotheroids, which other than the pygmy right whale are now extinct. But again, that's quite a bit of a controversy where that comes from. Um, we have very few fossils that we can clearly say are related to the pygmy right whale. And the oldest one is about 7 million years or so old. And so far, all of those have come from the southern hemisphere. So that so far, everything fits, if you like. Uh, everything is in the southern hemisphere. It's a local, localised species until and, now. And where typically would you find a whale fossil? Um, so, I mean, obviously you have to look on land for the most part because yeah. under the sea it's a bit more difficult. Um, you have layers of sediments that were laid down in the ocean at some point and then became what we call uplifted, for example, because you've got mountains, a mountain building event because two tectonic plates crash into each other and as they do sort of the crust gets crumpled up and you get this mountain range forming and that means that some of these marine sediments get uplifted and in those marine sediments you can then find whales dolphins seals all sorts of marine creatures and for example we find them in peru that's where one of the fossils came from but you also find a lot of them down here in the south uh, for example along the south coast of, of victoria of australia surf coast is a particularly good spot um, new zealand that sort of area Wow. We have, um, a, a, like a, I guess, a famous fossil bed for, for Melbourne, which is down in Portfield Bay, down around Beau Morris. Have any fossils of pygmy right whales been found there? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so, um, a it's a bit hard to tell, I guess, if we just have a, a small fragment of bone as to, as to what it comes from. Or, Indeed. Or maybe Felix isn't at liberty to say at this point. No, well, or, or I'm, or I'm at liberty to say it's all published. was published a few yeah, years great. ago. There's one chunk of bone which may be part of the skull of a pygmy right whale. The problem with the Bamora bits is that there is a lot of really interesting stuff coming out of it, but a lot of it is isolated bones. So isolated ear bones, isolated bits of skull. And in that particular case, it is an isolated bit. But because pygmy right whales are so rare in the fossil record as well, we are not 100% sure. We, we think it's a pygmy right whale, but you know, I wouldn't swear to it. Before we get on to talk about this, the discovery, I just wanted to ask you about the world of... Um, I, would you call yourself a paleontologist or a, an archaeologist or how would, what, how would you describe yourself? Right. I think we've just called you a research associate, which is kind of a, a gen, generic term. What is your profession? What is it that you do? Um, I'd say I'm a paleontologist by training. Um, but when you think about paleontology, I mean, paleontology means looking at past life, if you like. Archaeology is looking at human uh, cultural remains, cultural history. Right. And paleontology is looking at past life. 
in most instances, that means that you're really both a biologist and a paleontologist mm. because you ask the same questions as a biologist would, but you do that with a kind of time dimension. And it means that there are a lot of things that you can't do because you don't get soft tissue most of the time, for example. You only have um, DNA in fossils that are maybe a few hundreds of thousands of years old, not millions. But then you can you can ask how have things evolved and developed over time, which is something that biologists often can't do. They're more looking at a sort of snapshot in time. Mm. And what's the community like? So other, you know, your fellow paleontologists sort of around the world, and I gather, and this is kind of going to lead us on to talking about this discovery, what, what is that sort of paleontology community like, and particularly when it comes to cetaceans? Are you kind of a fairly small and very specialised group of people? Um, there are more paleontologists around as you, than you might think, but for whales and dolphins in particular, yes, it's a relatively small group. I mean, I can't give you exact numbers, but say there are maybe 20, 30 people who are doing this more or less full time. Mm. And then there are some people who will sort of dabble in occasionally. Um, but the group as such is relatively small. And how did you end up in this field? Um, well, I studied uh, st- studying paleontology in, in Britain originally. Um, and I became interested in in mammals first and then uh, whales and dolphins as a sort of example of something that is really bizarre within mammals, as something that comes from land and had to adapt to living in the water, which means that you have to do everything differently, like the way you feed, the way you breed, the way you produce offspring, everything is somehow different. So it's a really interesting poster child of evolution. So I became interested in whales sort of from that angle and then pursued it from there. Mm. And you've come to Melbourne from from Britain, got the job at the museum, so you're a postdoc at the museum. And was that specifically to look at whale fossils? Yes. So I I actually did my undergraduate in Britain and then did my PhD in New Zealand with a professor there who looks specifically at at whale evolution from a New Zealand perspective. And then here in Melbourne, the same, I got my postdoc specifically to to look at whale and dolphin evolution in the southern hemisphere and you hail originally from austria so this is a great example of the portability of science and the, and the way yeah. you know for those who are interested in getting into science i think this is one of the beautiful things about it is that you can you can travel the world and you can work at the, well you can work and travel at the same time and get to meet lots of different wonderful interesting people it's, indeed yeah that i've been very fortunate in that and i sort of have to acknowledge people who made that possible really yeah Let's talk about the discovery itself. So how were the fossils actually discovered? So we're talking about two different countries. One, now, were the fossils in Japan and Italy or is that where the whales themselves are thought to have come from? So the, the, we know for sure exactly where they came from, so we've got detailed records for that. Uh, for the Japanese fossil, it's a bit of an interesting story. It was actually discovered, I believe, in the late 40s, early 50s um, in Okinawa, which is a little island group to the south of, of Kyushu, of the southernmost of the main islands of Japan. And it was discovered when they were about to build a new military base. And afterwards, the landscape there was really remodeled. So I mean, the exact site of where it was found is now lost. But it was found during the preparations for building that base. And then it was sent from there to the National Museum of uh, Natural History in the United States, in Washington, D.C. And it sat there for many years until a Japanese researcher, who is now a co-author on that paper, went to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, saw that fossil and first couldn't quite make head or tail of it and then mm. thought, well, maybe it's a pygmy right whale, but that's really bizarre. They're not meant to occur in the north. They're not meant to occur in Japan. And initially, I guess, partially because it was so strange, that sort of discovery didn't really go anywhere. It was sort of discussed, but it wasn't really put into context properly. And the guy's probably thinking, I'm, I'm wrong. I've got, I've got to be wrong. <laughs> I guess there was an aspect of that, yes. Yeah. Um, the second fossil was found in Italy uh, much later, maybe in the mid-2000s. 
Um, and again, initially, people didn't really know what to make of it. They just sort of classified it as, oh, there's an ear bone and sort of put it to the side. There's actually more of that fossil in the rock still, but they couldn't collect it because at the moment that area is protected. So it's a reserve that came in after the first bit f- was collected. Um, and it was only now recently that people came together who had seen one or the other of those two fossils and sort of started talking to each other and thought, mm, actually, <laughs> there are some similarities here and there's, there's something that we can make out of this. Mm. So the, the, the fossil from, from Italy was an ear bone. The fossil from Japan yeah. that was in the Smithsonian, was, yeah. was that an ear bone or some other um, it's a partial It's a partial skull, so it's fragmentary, but it's a partial skull, um, including the ear bones. I should say when I say ear bone, so... In, in mammals in general, and in whales in particular, the ear bones are really diagnostic. They're really complex bones. There are lots of nerves going in and blood vessels going in, and there's the organ of hearing in there and the organ of balance. So it's one of the most complex bones in the body. And so when you see an ear bone, usually you can decide based just on that what kind of animal you're dealing with. So the ear bone fossil looks identical to an extant ear bone from a pygmy right whale? Virtually, yes. Okay. And that was that, that light bulb moment, wasn't it, when they, I guess they realised what they were looking at. What's your involvement with this, Felix? So I'm sort of sitting in the middle. So on the one hand, I'm, I've done a lot of work in the south where the pygmy right well is today. So I've seen a lot of the of skeletons of the living pygmy right well, if mm. you like, which in the north you almost don't get. They're just very, very rare to find in museum collections there. I had seen the fossil in America and I've been... Uh, collaborating quite closely with the, my colleagues in Italy who found the whale there, um, uh, based on a, another research program that we are doing in Peru. And so effectively, I was sort of the, the connecting point, if you like, between the people who were working on the Japanese material. I, I should say I, I did a postdoc for two years in Japan as well, so that's why <laughs> I knew about the Japanese material and the people involved there. You're a well-travelled man, Alex. <laughs> well, <laughs> you go where the fossils are. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they say. And... Um, also, I knew the people who were working the Italian material and I knew what to compare it to. So in a way, I was sort of approached from, from two different angles. And I, I and a colleague of mine at Museums Victoria, who was involved with the, with the Japanese material, could sort of pull it all together and effectively organise that collaborative project. So, of course, the big question that this raises is that how did they end up getting there and what, what are the, what's the current thoughts around their evolution? Okay, so the the thought about the revolution is still that they are a southern hemisphere lineage ultimately. So the oldest fossils still from are from the southern hemisphere. That's where we have them today. Um, the northern hemisphere fossils from from Italy and from Japan they're really quite young in geological terms. So one of them is about one point eight million years old. The one from Italy. The other one is between five hundred and nine hundred thousand years old. That sounds it's ancient and it is mm. but again if you think that the that the world is 4.6 billion years old it's happened yesterday and broadly speaking it coincides with a period that we would call the ice ages so you know the world is cold there are big ice sheets in the north and in the south there's a lot of sea ice and the difference at the time would have been that when you cool down the world you also ultimately cool down the equator the waters get a bit colder they become a bit richer there's a bit more food and it's easier for these smaller whales and dolphins to cross and the pygmy right whale wasn't the only one that did that. So we know, for example, that there are some species of dolphins, that there are right whales as well, or elephant seals that at that point crossed either from the north into the south or vice versa, and then actually stayed there later once the world warmed up again and the mm. equator became more impassable. So what can we extrapolate from this, do you think? Is it um, a likelihood of other marine fauna associated with the southern hemisphere potentially going to show up north of the equator? 
Uh, I think that's quite possible in mm. both ways, actually. I mean, it's it's strange. The, the really strange thing about this whale is that it's such a specialist and such a localized animal, a bit like a walrus would be in the southern hemisphere, mm. or a penguin in the southern. And I wouldn't think it's at all impossible that at some point we might find in in some sort of weird deposit somewhere that there is a southern walrus or a, a northern penguin. <laughs> and one of the reasons why we haven't up to now is that during the ice ages, a lot of water was locked up in ice sheets. So that means that sea level was dramatically lower, 100 meters or more. And so a lot of the rock that was formed at that time, when the ice melted again, is now underwater. Mm. So even though it's such a recent period, if you like, in, a, in Earth's history, we know relatively little about it as far as the, the marine record is concerned, because mostly it's inaccessible. So there's a, potentially a massive fossil record up to 100 meters underwater. Uh, yes. Absolutely wonderful. I'm just getting visions of divers down there with um, chisels and trying to get you know, having a look. <laughs> Felix, it's been fabulous having you in here and we really want to catch up with you again. What's next with research for you? Um, so we're at the moment working on a much older whale, about maybe 25 to 30 million years old, that may give some sort of insights into how whales started to filter feed the big whales. Great. Will you come in and speak with us about that? If I'm around, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> if, if, if you're not off somewhere else. It's all right. We'll chase you down. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for having been me. been an absolute pleasure, Dr. Felix Marks from uh, Museum Victoria and also with Monash University. We've got about three minutes left, Dr. Beach. Uh, yeah. We've covered one of your papers. You've got another one. Uh, just about, This is kind of a review which appeared in the most recent issue of Nature talking about ocean acidification. We've talked on this program many times about how as we pump more CO2 into the atmosphere than that, decreases the pH, increases the acidity of the ocean. And I'd, I've talked about how the, the, one of the obvious effects of that or one of the things that comes to mind mostly with biologists is that we have a lot of calcifiers in the ocean, organisms such as corals, organisms such as phytoplankton like coccolithophorids, which I've talked about before, which have calcium carbonate shells. They find it very difficult to actually grab carbonate from the ocean when there's more acidity there, that there's more hydrogen, so you get bicarbonate forms, chemical reaction. But anyway, as this acidity increases as the pH drops it's more difficult to calcify and this is one of the things that people initially started freaking out about with increasing CO2 in the atmosphere but it turns out you know of course that it's not just um, problems with calcifiers but also as we decrease the the pH then that also has a an effect on like signaling molecules in the in the ocean so proteins will change their conformation they will change their shape very slightly as you increase the amount of hydrogen there and those signaling molecules can very much interfere with the behavior of animals and there are some good examples there's one example in this paper of um, a female shore crab who will normally once she has eggs will kind of fan them uh, with little appendages that she has to keep the water flowing over them but People have recently done experiments showing that as you decrease the pH just a tiny bit... Um, that behaviour stops? That behaviour stops <gasps> because the signal molecules are no longer getting through. Ooh. Yeah. And Big implications. It's a really interesting experiment. that They remind us of an experiment which was done last year um, on the Barrier Reef which showed that if you, drop the, if you take the pH back to pre-industrial times, then you get a 27% increase, 17% increase, I'm sorry, in the calcification of corals. Mm. So in other words, we can take from that that corals have been calcifying a lot less since the Industrial Revolution. Dramatic news, Dr. Dr. Well, well, Yeah, dramatic news, but I'm sorry, we only had a minute and a half to deal with that, perhaps next week or the week after. It's been a show of discoveries. 
So thank you for yours, for bringing yours. And thanks to Alex for coming in from Museum Victoria. That would be Felix. Felix, I'm sorry. <laughs> and thanks to PT Hirschfield. Thank you, Kent. And uh, stay tuned for Radiotherapy. I can't see behind me who's coming in, but um, I'm sure you'll be thoroughly entertained and educated about all things to do with medical research and science through till 11 o'clock. Uh, on next week's program, Dr Surf's going to be in the house. Um, son of Surf is going to be in as well. That would be Jay. Jay Power. Jay Power. And uh, Neil Blake's coming in as well. So we're going to talk all things surf and, uh, and some community science work. As we sometimes do. Hey, have a wonderful Sunday. And uh, thanks for your calls and we'll catch you next week. Bye for now. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.